one of the things I like to do on this podcast, there are so many misconceptions about movie making and the entertainment industry. And I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School and host this, the No Film School podcast. And one of the things I like to do here when we have guests, like my amazing guest today, is debunk or investigate or just get behind the scenes, literally, on so many of the misconceptions about how this industry works. Even for people who are aspiring and follow it, there are things that are sometimes just, frankly, hard to believe. And we get into a lot of those little alleyways and cracks in the facade in this conversation. But my guest today, Greg Matola, is a very accomplished director. He came on the scene with an indie film. He worked on some of the most popular and successful comedy shows and actually non-comedy shows too. Of the last couple decades, he has worked with every great comedic talent. He is one of the great comedic talents, but because he's directing a lot of the times, he vanishes into things like Arrested Development with all those great voices involved in it or Undeclared or The Newsroom or the various movies as well, like Superbad. So we're going to talk today about how his opportunities came to him how he made certain decisions along the way that altered his course and how certain things happened that got him back onto the course he wanted to be on and how it all brought him to Confess Fletch, the movie we're actually talking about. Fletch, if you're not familiar with it, is a great movie from the 80s starring Chevy Chase. It's really one of his great movies, period. And he had quite a few. It's a series of books. Even if you know about Fletch, you might not know about that. It was a series of books that was adapted into that movie, and there was also a sequel. And it is one of these things that has been kicked around the industry to do again for as long as I can remember. The rumors have been abound about Fletch movies in development. And this is one of those things also that we get into where we're talking a lot about debunking some of the ideas behind what happens. You know, Just because something is a valuable property, just because major names are interested and attached and various timing doesn't work out, Things just don't happen. Well, things finally did happen. We talk about why, we talk about how, we talk about what went into adapting Fletch to today because the original books really don't apply as much and period was a choice they decided against. So all that and more. Plus, by the way, the movie's really good and hopefully people are going to go out and see it because it's the kind of movie I think a lot of us wish there were more of. So here we go. Confess Fletch with Greg Matola. Really excited to have you here. I'm a big fan and I'm a big fan of Fletch. And I've been excited about this movie because it has been something that they've been talking about. It's been in development for a while. A lot of people, <laughs> as I'm sure you know, I don't yep. need to tell you that. <laughs> but I want to go back a little bit. First, because you've been involved in a lot of amazing stuff. Tell me a little bit about, I guess, you know, starting off with, you know, television, directing television and how you got your foot in the door really there with some of these early and great shows that you did. Well, I made a little movie in the 90s called The Day Trippers, and that kind of made the rounds to indie art houses around the country and and, and got nice reviews. And, and that's 
kind of how I got my foot in the door with people like Judd Apatow. That's how he knew who I was. And I was very stubborn. I got a call about Freaks and Geeks. And I was like, no, I'm an indie filmmaker. I'm going to write and direct my own movies. And I was, I was, I'd written a movie that was going to get done at Sony Pictures. I was excited. I was going to do a studio film. It was going to star John Cusack, Steve Zahn, and ironically, when we get to it later, Chevy Chase. And, <laughs> wow. And that movie fell apart. As they do so often. As they do. And then I spent a little too much time trying to set it up elsewhere. And I thought, well, this whole plan to only write and only direct stuff I've written is really dumb. Because I'm not not the fastest writer. I'm a bit of a depressive and writing often turns into napping. And uh, and I really wanted to learn more about the craft and, and work. So in my sensibility is, you know, for the stuff I write up until really this new movie is has been very kind of personal and small and indie by design. So the second time Judd called me for, for undeclared, for undeclared, <laughs> I got on a plane immediately. And, <laughs> and were you just like, Oh, he called me again. Or like, can you tell me about how you, the relationship that he called you first of all for um, freaks and geeks, like having seen day trippers, was he just like, I'm a fan and I want to work with you one day. Or well, I mean, that, was that that came through my agents? They, okay. It was more like sniffing around saying, Hey, they're looking for director freaks and geeks. Um, Got it. And I said, Oh, that sounds really awesome, but I'm, I want to do this movie. Right. And then the second time it was, I think it was an, an email. It was more personal or we spoke. And, and so, yeah, I went out there and uh, undeclared had kind of a strange shooting schedule because Fox ordered a couple of episodes and then a couple of more and then a couple of more, even though it ran for one season, it was shot in three time periods. And so I did a few and loved it. And then did a few more. Then I got hired to direct this movie called Duplex. Then I got fired from a movie called Duplex. I remember <laughs> um, Duplex. I didn't know this. I, I, I got fired mostly because it was a, a black comedy um, written by a very funny writer named Larry Doyle, who I actually worked with uh, recently, re-met re, re up with many years later. And Harvey Weinstein got the idea that it should have a happy ending. It was written in the style of like a, you know, Ealing comedy, the lady killers type thing where yeah. bad yuppies are trying to kill an old lady for real estate. And right. Har- Harvey thought, you know, there's something about Mary came out, they should be happy. And it's like, no, they should get punished for trying to kill an old lady for real estate. <laughs> and no one could figure out how to make the script work anymore. And ultimately I couldn't figure it out. And so they say, well, let's find someone who could. And they got Danny DeVito and Danny DeVito, a great director, could not figure it out because it's not <laughs> something that can be figured out. Anyway, <laughs> I got fired from this movie and Judd, who being the mensch that he is, called me up and said, hey, hey, man, I, I heard that's not going to work out. I'm, I'm supposed to direct one of the last episodes of Undeclared. Why don't you come and do my episode? This is this is one of obviously more than more than several times Judd has done very great things for me. And so I did that. Yeah, it was such a great group of people. The writing staff was Nick Stoller, Rodney Rothman, Jenny Connor, all these people who have gone on, continue to do great stuff. Obviously, the cast was amazing. I came close with Seth. And and then um, other TV shows came my way. Uh, Arrested Development. You know, I got a call. My agent said, hey, would you consider doing this new show? I actually was doing a pilot with Bob Odenkirk called The 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 Big Wide World of Carl Lemke. And that did not get picked up. And it was the same year that Arrested Development was 
was being done for the same network, which is Fox again. And and I thought we made a funny show. I love Bob. Bob's a genius, obviously. But when I heard about Arrested Development and saw the pilot, I was like, oh, fuck, we're not going to get picked up because um, that show is pretty special. Um, and then my truly, agents, yeah. Yeah. And my agents, my agents said, would you like to do a couple episodes? And I said, yeah. And it was kind of great because the first few were directed by the Russo brothers. And then I was the next director in on like episode five, I think. Um, Cause they, they, between the two of them, they did the first four. And um, so it was still pretty early on. They're still figuring it out. Uh, although, you know, it was, it was overstuffed with comic geniuses and Mitch, the creator of the show was a great guy. And I loved doing that. And so my streak was really pretty lucky. And then the, the third call was for the comeback, which was, you know, kind of like Undeclared, a great show that only had one season initially. Pretty brilliant, groundbreaking comedy of its own. One thing I loved about that show was that they kind of took the mockumentary style, but they did slightly differently. They It was almost like you were watching um, dailies strung together because you'd constantly see around, you know, after the director calls cut, you'd see the crew and the producers and it would, you know, it showed around the other side of the camera in a great, funny, original way. And Lisa Kudrow was brilliant. So, you know, I was three for three, except for the pilot that I think I picked up, but I still think Bob and I made a pretty good show. And then the last show I did in that period was Cracking Up, which was Mike White's show. I did two episodes of that. That did not last very long on air. If you have Mike on, he'll tell you some really funny stories about the uh, mental breakdown he had during the time he was making that show. He was actually- I'd love to have Mike on. Tell him to come on sometime. <laughs> I will. He's an <laughs> amazing guy. Yeah, he was, he was, he was method- show running because as he was making a show name <laughs> cracking up he was cracking up but still a wonderful experience molly shannon jason schwartzman it was it was fantastic fun to work on that show i did an episode with jack black so, so even before we get to things like well super bad and then adventureland and then that kind of brings us more up to where we are now even though those things were a while ago you started off i'm gonna only be an indie filmmaker writer director and then you were like okay i'll do this tv thing and you basically worked with like the top talent among in comedy in television and you're among you're one of them too but like there's it's almost like you're part of this this breeding ground of and a lot of these shows they didn't last or they struggled to find their audience or even in arrested developments case like people didn't seem to appreciate just how genius this thing was when it was on there's like a common thread do you know what i mean like were yeah. you aware of it were all of you kind of aware of it like even doing a pilot with bob like I worked with Bob a little bit at one time and, and some of the other people you've mentioned too around then there, there was like, now Bob's huge, yeah. but it's kind of like that genius. Like, I mean, Mr. Show is just genius. And like all yes. these people were kind of like, it was, it felt like it was all there, but there was a lot of like trial and like nothing catching with the, like, like freaks and geeks, even though you didn't work on that. It's another example of one of these things. Yeah, of course. Can you yeah. tell us as an kind of like a filmmaking community and an audience, like, it's somewhere between like hugely like success and and not success, right? Because it's it's all these little things, but they don't catch on in the mainstream quite. And you all must know you're doing good stuff. How do you stay like confident in what you're doing and in the tone and that it'll hit, it'll work, like we're gonna keep doing it, you know? Well, I just I I mean, yeah, I just knew I knew good work was being done. I mean, I saw how talented the people I was lucky enough to work with are and 
and thought it'll 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 have its moment. I got super lucky because Superbad was one of its moments, <laughs> and and yeah. it'll be like you know people will catch up with this. They'll 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 get to appreciate it. It's you know it's like did Albert Brooks movies make as much money as other comedies when they came out? I, I don't know for sure. I didn't research that, but I probably not. But do we remember those a lot more than? I'm sure many movies that came out the same year. I mean, I've I certainly have rewatched Albert Brooks movies a lot more than other people's. And yeah, they probably didn't break records at the box office. They ain't going anywhere. Um, yeah, that's timeless genius that that will always work. Uh, and you know, for whatever reason, yeah, it's not it's not maybe the lowest common denominator taste or people just aren't feeling it yet. I don't. You know, is there I, something about comedy? that is not such straight comedy, but is blended with some like humanity or introspection or real life stuff that these things all kind of share. And, and Albert Brooks is a really good example of someone who does that too, where you think like, okay, we're just, like you mentioned, um, Ealing comedy versus with duplex versus trying to make something about Mary. There's nothing wrong with that. It's very funny. It's a good movie. But yeah, like, I love that. that there's something like nuanced and like, you know, we're going to like, we're hitting a different target, you know? Yeah. And, and, and there is also an element of the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers are usually behind the curve too. These people, you know, they're, they're business people. <laughs> yeah, they're can. trying to figure it out. I mean, you know, they could have kept Freaks and Geeks on the air. They could have given it, they could have given it another season to see, you know, if people caught up with it um, or, or if the audience has started to grow, but, but they're, they're cowards, so they, you know, or they're or they're worried about <laughs> losing their jobs. They're worried about losing their jobs. and there's a lot of turnover, right, at those positions. It's crazy. Exactly. So, I mean, it's it's yeah. it's 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 like the, I don't really understand how the executive level works because it's almost designed to fail because people just when yes. they hit their stride uh, usually get fired and replaced by somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. So I, I've met a lot of very well-meaning executives in my time, and I understand why it's hard for them to r- take risks. Yeah. And and people who say like, yeah, I love this, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be the one who makes it. <laughs> um, right. Everybody hears that. Sometimes it's probably a lie, but a lot of times it's probably truth because it's safer to say no. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Let me ask you this, uh, because I want to get onto the movies too soon, but how do you navigate and survive psychologically, fiscally, whatever, workly? <laughs> how do you, with the, the reality that the gatekeepers are cowards for self-preservation reasons that are fair? Like, how do you navigate that? How do, you sur- how do artists and creatives in the industry survive it? I mean, it's taken me a long time to learn the lesson. I've, I've learned it and relearned it at stages, but really the only thing you can do is just keep going. I mean, uh, when I, for instance, when I wrote my second movie that Chevy was going to be in, uh, it, 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 we got into pre-production. I was hiring, I was, it was going to shoot in the South of France. It was about a destination intervention, essentially. And a bunch of oh, friends. Oh man, who, was he the one that the intervention was happening to? He was, no, he was going to be 
John Cusack was going to play the the one to be intervened. Uh, okay. And and Chevy was a relative who comes who you know makes things much harder than they have to be. And you know we got far. We, I was scouting in the south of France. I was meeting crew over in Europe. I was. So thrilled. And then when it fell apart, I, I wasted way too much time feeling sorry for myself. And then when I started doing TV, I said, I can't ever do that again. There's, there's, you know, luckily I was single and used to being broke. So it was, it was <laughs> fine. But, you know, eventually now after Superbad, I, you know, I got married um, right before Superbad. I had a kid right after Superbad. It's like, okay. And now I've got three kids I live in New York City. It's insanely expensive. Yeah, that's um, a lot. <laughs> and, and so that's bold. I gotta just keep working. And and you know, there there are projects that I've done because I have to work. There are projects that I've I've done because it's like okay, I can make a little less money right now. We've got some in the bank. And then there's the pandemic where I basically went broke and thought, okay, I gotta now not stop working for the rest of my rest of my life uh, and no retirement for me. But so the grind doesn't like you're kind of saying even with the success you've had, which is such like top 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 tier, the grind never ends in this industry. It <laughs> kind of doesn't. I mean, you know, also the business changed. It was easier. It was easier to get rich in this business a while ago. It's it's harder now. It's 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 always been kind of a winner takes all business, but it's it's you know they give they give a lot of the money to some people and then the rest of us fight over the scraps and that's you know i mean it's always been that but it's mm-hmm. it's, it's streaming as it was as bad as it's been for the music industry it's for for tv and films you know the corporations got in there with their smart lawyers and and gamed it to keep all the profits so you know things like getting residuals which keep writers yeah. and directors afloat uh, have uh, almost completely gone away. And so, actors too, creating actors entire too. careers and livelihoods out of that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's harder. Uh, I shouldn't complain because I'm one of the really lucky ones, but you know, I do, I, 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 I don't want to take time off. So I really shouldn't complain. I, I don't want to retire. <laughs> I want to do this until, until, you know, they pull the plug on me. So yeah, it's, it, what was your initial question? It was that uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're in a great. We've entered into some really interesting stuff, though, because talking about the way the streamers have changed the model, like that kind of could bring us to like. So, Super Bad was a theatrical back in that pre-streamer dominated world. Like it was a it was a dynamo. Like it blew up. It touched a nerve. It caught the moment, the zeitgeist, like all that. And that was was that for you the return to like okay feature films now or yeah, like you know what I mean, what happened for you with that it's that's I, a huge deal yes obviously. it was <laughs> I had I had actually written Adventureland and I was gonna I was about to start sending it around when I had, I'd been living in LA for about three years I moved back to New York because I missed it and I'm just a New Yorker because. I like abusive relationships with my city. <laughs> and well, and, LA's plenty abusive too. That's you true. Know, yeah, I, I learned that when I was there too. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to try and make that film when I got a call from Judd saying, Hey, remember Superbad, which was we did a table read of it during the undeclared years, which were three years prior. And Judd had been trying to get it set up. And he had asked me if I would direct it at the time. And and no one would touch an R-rated teen comedy. Finally, Judd had evolved to the, you know, David O'Selznick status, David O'Selznick of comedy <laughs> status that people were like, okay, finally, we'll make your dumb R-rated comedy. And, uh, if and, your name's on it, we'll do it. Yeah. And so Judd called me and said, do you remember that? Would you do it? 
And once again, I was, you know, on a plane before the phone call was over. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so when that came out, you know, I mean, I, I still, even, even though we'd had these great responses and screenings, I still didn't expect it to do as well as it did. I just, maybe cause I'm, I'm, I'm not enough of an optimist, but I was just like, <laughs> there's no way this is going to, you know, do the kind of business they're talking about. And then when it opened and it did, I was like, wow, that's really cool. And then, and then I had, I made one of several questionable decisions in my career, which was that uh, I started to try and set up Adventureland um, before Superbad came out and people were taking the meeting uh, taking meetings that they might not have taken a few years before that, but it wasn't going to be a slam dunk because it wasn't super bad. It was much more of a personal comedy drama coming of age thing. Uh, it wasn't as obviously commercial. And is that I, why it was a mistake? I want. Well, I'm why, just was, curious it, why the it was a mistake was. Yeah. because at the same time Judd said, "Hey, do you want to do bridesmaids?" And I said, uh, "No, I think I'm going to do this little film I've been dying to do." And you know, I don't regret it really, but. Still, that would have been pretty awesome. And, he, and I can't say I regret <laughs> it because Paul Feig just killed it. He made an amazing film. And there's no guarantee I would have made a film as good as he did with that material. So, But at the same time, I sort of feel like, yeah, maybe I should have just held off one more movie. <laughs> but, but what can you do? Seems like you've been in this battle uh, often where it's like the the old one for them, two for me, or one for me, or whatever, where you've kind yeah, of been like, I, I I'm going to try to do this. And it, and it, and it, maybe it's never clear what the right decision is, right? No, I mean, I yeah, I have, there's this this indie personal film side of me that I, that I will always want to go back to. And in fact, I, I spent time in between the paying gigs, writing a very personal little movie that I want to make. And I was going to try and go out with it. And then the pandemic hit. And it's all about New York City, a changing New York City. And then New York City changed a lot more than my script was depicting because <laughs> it was like Omega Man on the streets. And I thought, well, this is not going to be a good time to try and set this up because people just won't be able to visualize. No one knows what New York's going to be in a couple of years. So, so I, I've sat on it and, uh, you know, at some point soon, I'm going to do a little polish on it, addressing New York post pandemic as if the pandemic's ever going to fucking end. But, right. <laughs> but, but I, you know, that's, that's, yeah, that's the one for me movie that I still, you know, I'm going to try and squeeze in there. And, and then, you did, but like then going on, like you did, um, Paul, you did Clear History, you did, and you had multiple John Hamm collaborations, which might bring us up to where we are now. But <laughs> like, yeah. there's like, that's, that's kind of like, you kept like Larry David. I mean, you've continued to, to just work with like the best comedy talent. Like you, you guys just keep churning out interesting stuff. So it's not like there was a dead end or something, right? No, I, like I said, I've been, I've been super lucky. Working with Larry was a dream come true. I mean, I, I, I worship him. Uh, he turned out to be like one of those meet your heroes and it worked out extremely well. He's a great guy. He's an absolute pleasure. He, you know, is, is hilarious in life as he is in, on Curb. And, uh, and you know the only challenge of a movie like that is it's uh, there's no script, so it was it was you know I'd been used to doing a lot of improv with in Judd's world, but this was really all improv, and and that's its own kind of filmmaking challenge. There's a lot of things you can't plan for, but that was all super cool and exciting, and yeah, I mean I loved every second of that experience, and I loved working with with Nick Frost and Simon Pegg, 
uh, yeah. and the cast of that movie. And that was a different, a different challenge in that we were making sort of a medium, small comedy with a very expensive lead actor in the name of a, of a CGI alien. Um, yeah. It was like, like a third of the budget was, <laughs> was the alien. And so we had to work fast. Like we were shooting, you know, a normal smallish comedy, but then stop for, you know, silver ball shots and plates and things that I'd never done before. And it was a very fast education in that. And, you know, I love that movie. Any flaws in that movie, I take full blame for being, you know, maybe a little not quite experienced in that world, but I, I've, I still have enormous affection. I'm proud of that film. I, I, um, I, I learned a lot. I, the only, I think the only regret I have about that film is I wish I knew more. I wish I knew what I'd learned by the end of it before I could have started because, because I would have realized earlier the challenges of, of working in the world of, of VFX and, and maybe would have adjusted to it faster. It was, it was, I was learning on the job. It was, and also what we had a really short, the- we had a really short prep. We had like two months and for a movie like that, it, it was yeah. crazy. I just remember, you know, being on the scouting bus and the special effects guy saying, okay, how many times are you going to cut to Paul in this scene? And it's going to be medium. It's going to be a close up. And we didn't have time to storyboard it. And I was like, uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I make these decisions in post. I don't know. What you're, you know, it's, it's, so it's like, yeah. Oh, I get it now. This is what I, this is, this is what I'm doing. And uh, it was, you know, it was like making a kind of an ensemble comedy movie, but one of the characters just happens to be um, an alien. So that's a unique take because this the world you're used to moving in is one that where a lot of things adjust based on performances and improv and finding jokes and beats and and it's very flow and rhythm based and like you know for the cliche but like jazz kind of with everybody playing and and cg and and that level of effects is the exact opposite it's like classical music or something yeah you have to <laughs> every be, note has yeah. to be exact right you have to be super buttoned up and 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 yeah and you can't sit there and tell the the silver ball like okay riff on this right <laughs> <laughs> i mean the truth is we actually did that to some extent because because seth rogan wasn't available to be on set the whole time but joe latrulio was in the movie and so joe very kindly was our paul so he could improv we did actually do our version of it, but it was, but it was, it was, it was a weird mixture of things. Uh, you know, it was a blast. That movie was a blast to make. I, I, it did really well in the UK. It got a little bit sort of dumped in the theaters here. Um, it's one of those things where it's like, it's always, it always makes me happy when someone tells me they've actually seen it and liked it. So (laughs) I think a lot of people didn't know about it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, coming up to to confess Fletch and just Fletch in general, how did you end up getting attached to this Fletch movie? I feel like Hollywood's been wanting to make this a Fletch movie since not long after the first Fletch movie, which was a very long time ago. Well, <laughs> Is I that think, partially true or not at all? No, true? I think it's true. I mean, there, you know, there are various fictional characters that get adapted and and either an actor gets attached 
to the role and people have a really hard time imagining anyone else. Or you, someone like Philip Marlowe, Raymond Chandler's detective, yep. has been played by Humphrey Bogart all the way up to Elliot Gould, James Garner, Robert Mitchum, Alan Ladd. I mean, he's been played by about 15 different actors between the TV and movie versions of Chandler yeah. novels. So even though people were pissed off by Robert Altman's The, Lo- the Long Goodbye because they felt it was, it was thumbing its nose at what Philip Marlowe was supposed to be, I love that movie. And it, over time, that movie did not get very good reviews. It was pretty pan. I love that movie too. It was the book's it was, good, but the movie—that's a great movie. And it's Gould a great, is great movie. Yeah, it's yeah. a great movie. And and you know, and I love The Big Sleep too. Uh, and it, what's mm-hmm. funny is The Big Sleep came out in the forties. Long Goodbye came out twenty-seven years later. The original Fletch is thirty-seven years ago, and yet there are a lot of people I've noticed on Twitter in particular, who cannot bear the idea of someone else playing Fletch and Chevy. And I get it because that's a movie people love, including myself. It would have helped me actually, if some of those other Fletch movies had been made. So people have been broken in to the idea Uh, of like, Hey, you know, we did, we tried George Lazenby. Okay. It didn't quite work. (laughs) You had to be the one, you (laughs) guys had to be the ones. But that's actually a great Bond movie. His one Bond movie is fantastic. It's very unique. Uh, And then, but, but, you know, people rebelled and then they said, okay, we're going to pivot to Roger Moore. That's not quite as, quite as uh, scandalous. So, you know, over time people got used to, to, to many different Bonds or, but Fletch, I think because, or Batman's, or, or I mean, or, I feel, or Spider-Man. It, we get like ten Spider-Men per movie. I know, you know? exactly. Is it Batman or Batman? I I don't know. Batman's. I'm <laughs> I, fine with either. I yeah. I'll take I'll take out my guide to uh, superhero grammar book and get back to you. <laughs> so so yeah. so uh, so John came to me. John was part of the project before I was. So John ah John when he was younger saw the first Fletch and loved it. And that led him to the books. The way he tells the story is that he found out there was a novel and he went to Walden books and then found out there were actually several novels. However, many had been written by 1985, I think is when Fletch came out and he stole them because he was broke. Um, <laughs> he was a broke teenager and Walden books is long out of business. So I think he's pretty safe. He loved the books and he saw that the books were slightly different in tone than the movie and it was sort of there's one like of like 20 of them or something, right? There's, there's, <laughs> there's a think, lot of them. I think there's 11, <laughs> 10 or 11. Um, yeah. And 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 some were written after that fact. I and mean, he was writing, uh, Gregory McDonald was writing them up until I think the early 2000s. And so it was like one of those sort of fantasy things when you're a young person, you think, wouldn't it be cool someday to play this guy? Got it. And other then in the meantime, Kevin Smith and other talented, great people tried to make it with great ideas for the character, like Jason Sudeikis and Zach Braff and Jason That's Lee. Right. I remember those. And, and for one reason or another, they wouldn't happen. I, I, you know, I went online and read some of the stories about it. I think, I think Harvey Weinstein was telling Kevin Smith, it can't be Jason Lee. It has to be Ben Affleck. It's gotta be a bigger star. You know, whatever, whatever the reason was, mm-hmm. I don't know if part of it was a little bit like the, the fear of, of, you know, taking it on because Chevy's shadow loomed large over the. Yeah, I was going to say Chevy looms large, right? Yeah, I mean, so it's everybody's... his performance is, and and his comic persona is so specific and so great and so perfect for that version of Fletch that 
I found it very daunting. So John came to me with the information that Miramax had bought the rights to all the books, but the first one, and they came to him and they didn't even know that he loved the books and loved the character. And he said, I want to do a version that's closer to the books. So I went off and read, I hadn't read them. I, I had heard they were great. I'd love detective stories. I'd read Hammett and Chandler and other, other mm-hmm. more modern novelists, uh, Elmore Leonard. And I love crime mm-hmm. fiction. I love that genre. It's something I always wanted to work in. So I went off and read about five or six of the books and I loved them. I thought they were great and, and so smart and, and fantastic. And, and an investigative reporter was a great idea for a modern day detective. But curiously, in the second book, Confess Fletch, which was the one John suggested should be the one he does, Fletch is already retired from being an investigative reporter. And I thought, well, that kind of helps because John is older than the character on the page. And if he's kind of coming out of retirement to solve a couple of mysteries, that makes some logic to it with John playing it. But there had already been a screenwriter attached before I was even involved, a very very talented writer named Zev Barrow. And I had read Zeb's outline for it and a couple of scenes. And I thought, these are really funny. They're, they're pretty broad, but they're very, very funny. When Zeb finally turned in a script, John and I read it, and we both had the same reaction, which is, this is a great fucking script for Chevy Chase. <laughs> but it's not quite the version John wants to do and not quite the version mm. I saw in my head. And it had dispensed a lot of the novel. Um, it, it, Zev loves the Fletch mo- movies, understandably. But I felt, you know, I thought this this is tricky. I mean, this this would require John to really kind of do a Chevy impersonation um, hmm. to, to play what he wrote. And maybe that's a way to go. And maybe a different actor, you know, a Jason Sudeikis could do that and, and make it work. It's 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 I feel like it's a little, there's a little danger in that and trying to be similar to a beloved performance. And it wasn't it wasn't a different enough. So I. Hmm took over the next drafts and, and I went back to the book and took characters and scenes that were in the book that weren't in Zev's version. And I, you know, stole everything that I loved of Zev versions, his best lines and the scenes. And, you know, there's a yeah. lot of great stuff that he created and broke from the novel that I kept, but, but I, I, I changed quite a bit and I changed who the actual murderer is. And I, and I used ideas from the book, brought them into 2022. And, and that's, that's basically where we started. I, you know, cause it wasn't, cause this wasn't a personal kind of mem- nostalgia memory thing for me, like Adventureland or something. John and I took advantage of some of the great comedy minds that we're friends with and asked people like that to read it and give notes and, mm. Bill Hader gave me great notes. Um, John works with uh, Neil Gaiman on his show, Good Omens. Good it turns out mm. Neil Gaiman loves the Fletch novels and knows them inside out. And he read it. it was very encouraging because he really liked what I was direction I was going in, but gave me some great ideas that I think cracked open some of the best things in the movie. Um, Robert Carlock, who created Thirty Rock, who John was on, yeah. and their friends. He he yeah. he pitched a few jokes that are in there. It's like or or opened up some ideas that I wrote too. So you know, I have no shame. I was going to go to anybody who could help me. Yeah, and it was it was, and it was the first time I was writing something like this, and it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. At the same time, I was and still nervous that you know some people who love the original are just going to feel like, hey, this is not that, and I reject it. You know, I think on the one hand, there's so much of everything. And obviously part of the reason something like this is gets, you know, a green light is because there's a relationship to nostalgia and a previously 
successful thing. But on the other hand, like you said, 36 years, is that, that's a long time. <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe that there was less distance between Gould and Bogart than there is between Ham and Chevy Chase in this role. But there we are. <laughs> but well, yeah, I, I, mean, I don't, know. how many people do you think are that? I know Fletch is great. I love, I love Fletch, but do you think the familiarity is so heavy? Is because sometimes with Twitter you get what you get is like this vocal ridiculous minority. I think know? yeah, I think I mean you know when I was in in life as I talk to people, many people under forty have never heard of it, and right. and and certainly Gen Zers don't know it unless unless but they know John unless they're Don's right? and unless, they know yeah my my son knows it because I told him you should watch this it's really funny but if that didn't happen yeah but right they know John. They know your work because something like, you know, the shows you've done and the movies you've done. I mean, I think you both of you have a connection to a modern audience that probably the original Fletch doesn't, a young audience at least. I hope so. I hope that, you know, part of the reason it's getting this sort of hybrid, smallish release is it's not a big, broad body comedy, which I can be blamed for the proliferation of. <laughs> along with Judd. Um, but we decided not to do that. We wanted to make sort of uh, a more dialogue-driven comedy of manners. Like one thing that I noticed in the novels is a lot of the secondary characters are quite funny and an oddball. And and Fletch likes oddballs. He likes authentic people. He he fucks with phonies. But he's he's actually, he, he'll lie to anybody, but he'll, he's affectionate. And he, he actually has, yeah, he genuinely cares and, and, is, and is drawn to weirdos. And in the original... Chevy version, everyone's a straight man to him. And it makes sense right. because what I, one of the things I love about the original is he has like a Marx Brothers kind of insanity that he comes into a room and just is so baffling to people. They don't know what's going on and, and, and he's making fools out of all of them. And that's great. And I love that. But that's not really the character in the novel. So, so we went a different way. And, and I did make some of the secondary characters a little more comedic than they are in the book for the sake of entertainment. You just nailed something, though, that I never recognized, which is that part of what I do love about it is that is that exact quality that is a Marx Brothers thing that the Marx Brothers, Groucho in particular, similar to Fletch, it is sort of turning everything else upside down. Like the world is structured and he's like, Eh, fuck all that. Like, I'm going to make it, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to make it yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. But, but that's not really the intent behind the books, right? And the, not, and the, I mean, and the... sometimes, but, you know, I think probably the closest we come to it, there's a scene with Lucy Punch um, where, where Fletch is pretending to be this kind of style fashion writer and he's blowing smoke up her ass because uh, she's this influencer, you know, mm -hmm. lifestyle uh, expert, just full of shit, rich person. And, mm -hmm. and there, you know, I just decided, I thought it would be funnier if he was just more shallow and superficial than she is. So even she's hmm. confused by the horrible right, things he's right, saying, right. the horrible tone deaf <laughs> things he's saying, even though she's horrible and tone deaf. Um, and I think, you know, that's but the general adjustment was like for, for the way John Hamm is going to play it. It was like, we're going to make him more the straight man to the weird world he's in. Yeah, except when he sort of needs to dispense a barrage of nonsense of his own. Right. But yeah, mostly, mostly like in the book, he's a real smartass, and and that's something yeah. we retained. But we didn't try to emulate the level of chaos that, that Chevy would unleash, which is, yeah, which is which is which is great. And one of the things I love about that movie, but that's that's him. That's that's right. That's what he brought to it, and. 
and and why steal? That's stealing. This is homage yeah. and stealing. There's a thin line, but um, it, yeah. it does exist. Uh, you need to create uh, a version of it that's that's original, right? In I mean, that's, yeah, right. that's, that was way. certainly the intention. Yeah. How did you, the choice to make it today? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like well, to make it to modernize it versus you know Fletch, which is kind of fixed in time. I mean, the same thing. This you talked about Elliot Gould and the Altman. Uh, version of Raymond Chandler, but like, that's a very different take. Like, did you have conversations about that? How do we want to do that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the one thing that's in all the Fletch books is there's a, there's a certain amount of satire and social commentary that Gregory McDonald was very good at and very funny with. And he had strong feelings about bad things in society and injustices. And he took this guy who, you know, likes to lie and break the law, (laughs) But ultimately is on the side of right. He just has no faith in yeah. institutions or police or any any authority. And, uh, you know, we – I looked – I tried – I imagine I, I – I mean, Zev had already been writing a contemporary version. When I when I read the book, I was thinking, well, what would a period version feel like? The things that he's kind of sending up in that and Confess Fletch, the social mores, a lot of them are related to the sexual revolution. And some of them don't, <laughs> don't really right. either – feel relevant now or would just get you in a shitload of trouble um, <laughs> or be confusing maybe yeah they would need, <laughs> like they, given where we are yeah some of yeah. them some of them were a a, a road to cancellation um even even <laughs> though even though he was a great liberal i mean he had, but but there's, right. but there there's some things you know it was stuff that seemed r- risky then but just just on the edge of acceptability would probably fall over the edge now. So how do you <laughs> um, translate? Because this is a really good lesson, and I know we're over, so I'll try to I'll try to limit us. But I, I I feel like this is an amazing thing to stumble into. How do you translate something that is the verge of of cancellation and and just doesn't work anymore into something that attacks the modern social mores and issues? Also with the same slant towards like what's wrong with institutions, what's what's wrong with cultural norms. Cause that's the that's the heart of comedy too, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I I guess I just try to bring it into the conversation that's going on now. For instance, the scene I was just talking about, he's fucking with this influencer. There's there's you know, my the point I'm trying to make is there's a world of people who have a lot of money, who make even more money telling you to spend money becoming beautiful and cool. Mm-hmm. And it's the tone deaf aspect of that that really drives me up the wall, that really pisses me off and annoys the fuck out of me, is that you're talking, a lot of people can't afford this. They can't afford to be beautiful and and eat mm-hmm. at these restaurants and go on these vacations and buy these clothes and buy these beauty products. And and these, you know, a lot of celebrities or, or, or paid influencers who get all these products mm-hmm. for free act like they're, living just this beautiful dream of a life and it's all very Zen and, and fantastic. And they're just, you know, it's just ugly capitalism and, and, and wealth disparity. And I, and, and, and it turns my stomach. So that was kind of what I was, you know, hinting at with that stuff. There's a lot of yeah. like sort of older Boston money kind of characters in the movie that, you know, one of the things about, and it's in the Fletch books is that Fletch is very handsome and he can kind of move through that world and everyone thinks, oh, he's one of us. Right. But I think Fletch has a very different value system. I don't think Fletch even gives a shit about money. He doesn't mind having fun. He doesn't mind comfort. He doesn't mind luxury, but he also can walk away from it in a second. He, you know, he's just, it's just not, it's not the priority to him. So there was, you know, kind of a white privilege 
theme running through the movie. And also Fletch being the beneficiary of white privilege, which he's called on by Roy Wood Jr.'s character, who plays the the detective who's who's investigating whether he's Fletch is, in fact, the murderer of the story. And yet they have a begrudging affection for each other. Uh, And, you know, I didn't I didn't try to get heavy handed with it. There's a, yeah. there's a lot of message movies out there. A lot of them are messages I agree with. Occasionally, I'll see a message movie and say like, okay, this is great, but it's only going to be seen by people who already agree with it. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. It's so, a problem. It's a problem. So it's like, yeah, it's like <laughs> we can all pat ourselves on the back. But, <laughs> right. but you yeah. know, Gregory McDonald has a quote that I, I put in my press notes, which is, uh, writing mysteries lets me get away with murder. I think the mystery may be the greatest form for social criticism simply because it's pedestrian. It's the way I feel about mm. sneaking a little bit of social commentary into comedy or genre movies is that people are there to laugh. And then and then hopefully you can sneak in some things that make them think too. And I, you know, look, it's up to other people to decide if I succeeded in that or not. And if I get to do another one, uh, there's a book I want to adapt that ha- would have a lot more of that in it. This was this was dipping my toe into that world a little bit, but I did want to have it in there. And the the cast all were aware of it, and everyone everyone played along. I love that. I mean, I hope you do. I really hope you guys do get to do another and do more of that. It's ba- it's a Trojan horse. It's like you're hiding vegetables in a sauce that people want to eat. That's, exactly. It's, it's exactly what it should be. Um, and, you know, people go to the movies not to be lectured necessarily, but you can definitely put across some ideas that maybe are applicable, especially right now about class and class disparity. And like you said, having Fletch be a guy who moves smoothly between, you know, yeah. who has the privilege to move between and, and you know, be our, our conduit into that. I mean, I think, I think what bugs me about people like influencers is that they are, you know, they tend to be limousine liberals. They're all on the right side of everything mm-hmm. in their politics. But in their in 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 the class disparity stuff, they're just they don't acknowledge it at all. And I feel like that must make a lot of people feel bad. And mm-hmm. and that sucks. You know, we're all kind of obsessed with being healthy and looking good and having living our best lives. But it's like <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's a version of that that we're being sold constantly that requires shitload of money. Millions of dollars yeah, to maintain just, that you don't see. Yep. So that's a pet peeve, obviously. I won't I won't talk about it anymore. Yes. No, <laughs> I mean I, I appreciate I, I appreciate it. And I'm I'm so glad you came on. This was a lot of fun. I hope you guys get to do more. I'm glad it finally happened. And I'll say personally I was glad, like, I was glad it was John Hamm because I was like, that's good. That, that I know you said he's not quite the Fletch of Chevy Chase and he looms large, but I feel like it's it's a very appropriate, it works because he he feels a little bit like he could also be, you know, he could be in Hammett or Chandler, you know, like, so yeah. he fits yeah, well, the mold, I mean, the character you know, he's the right. in the book is is half drama, half comedy. I mean, and and, right. and, I, and I really love the idea of putting John in the center of something like this and, and letting people see that he can, do a very light touch sustained comedy, but also he has obviously the chops to do the drama. But the big difference between this and a Don Draper is Don Draper has a lot of darkness and damage. Fletch loves life. He's he's he <laughs> right. loves people. He loves, you know, he hates a lot of people, but he even enjoys fucking with people that piss him off. He he he's really engaged by life. And I think there's a very even though he's a little shady, as the movie says, he's kind of he's a kind of real wish fulfillment character. I wish I could kind of go through life yes. and get away with the shit yes. Fletch gets away with. Yeah, it's funny you say that. He would certainly hate Don Draper. 
Like they would oh, be on yeah. opposite he, ends. Oh, it'd be of, fantastic like, and, to do some weird mashup of him do, fucking yes, with Tom Draper. <laughs> it would, it would, it would work. Um, well, thank you so much again. It was a lot of fun, and uh, good luck with the film. Thank you, George. A pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Greg, for coming on the podcast. Thanks everyone for listening. I've always been a fan of Fletch. I always wanted to see more. I don't think that there could be a more appropriate team to have come to it besides for Greg and John Hamm. I think they're perfect and I think they attack this in the right way. Um, but who cares what I think? Check it out and decide for yourself. And head over to nofilmschool.com and read all about all kinds of movie making and filmmaking, and content creating, news, education, tips, tricks, and tech. There's always new tech coming out constantly, and you'd be amazed what you can do now if you aren't already with so much less. Be sure to also like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already, and leave a comment. Let us know what you think about it. Send us your questions at editor at nofilmschool.com. Also send us your comments, your thoughts, your feedback, whatever. We love to hear from you. And we answer a lot of those questions on the podcast. We do a weekly show that releases on Thursdays, sometimes Fridays, just like these interviews release Tuesdays, sometimes Wednesdays. But pretty much it's a Tuesday, Thursday release schedule, depending on other things going on in the world of entertainment and no film school. Thank you all so much again for listening. Mm-hmm.